this is an issue. This is why inflation has to be kept under control because inflation leads to poor quality across the board on almost everything because it's a it's now a competition to who's inflating slowest who has the cheapest price and if you're making quality goods you got to get ahead of inflation and charge more for the stuff that you're selling than you normally would which is going to out you're going to price you out of the market with the cheapos so that's why inflation is bad and Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Uh, we are warning you, this actually needs to be at a higher level than our normal disclosures. We are bald. We are bearded. Um, we come to you to speak about things inane, such as money and the economy. If any of those statements cause your triggering to go off, we advise that you change the station immediately. Otherwise, um, if you believe it is incredibly exciting to hear us talk about the Federal Reserve and talking about the Beige Book as if you understood what that was, then you are on the right spot. Hopefully, we'll even explain what that means. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach and hopefully we'll make it more interesting than the normal econ babble back and forth of what's going on in the world. Um, we, before we get started, have to tell you the regulatory disclosures, not just the ones about our follically challenged status, our beards, or the fact that we like puns. So the disclosures. Number one, this is the personal wealth coach. And not coincidentally, that's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Uh, it's not coincidental because the people talking to you on the air here are the principals of that firm. However, just because that firm is registered to give investment advice and it shares the same name because it's the same people and the same founders and all that good stuff, it doesn't mean that we're giving you investment advice on the air because we can't do that. We don't know you guys all, or maybe we do. Maybe we know all one of you. Hi, how are you? Let's have a nice chat. But other people could be listening in to that in the middle of the conversation. So there's all kinds of fiduciary problems here. We can't give investment advice on the air. So we give education, hopefully. Hopefully we educate rather than de-educate, but e either way, uh, there's a camp for that. Uh, we will re-educate. That's what we'll do. Yes. Call us big brother. <clears throat> uh, also, just because we're the firm is registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC, the governmental agency, has some feeling of favoritism in our general direction. No. Um, they would rather taunt us a second time. Uh, if you get my drift, their their job is to taunt folks like us into doing the right things, not to say, oh, they're so wonderful. That's not how they work. The government isn't good that way. Unless you've been in the military and you did something that basically you should be dead. And then the government's really fond of you. So are we, by the way. Thank you very much for doing that, whomever you are. Strange example person. That then leads on to... Uh, your preferred disclosure? Would you like to take that one? Well, let's see. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable 
but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Though we absolutely warranty and guarantee the incompleteness of all unsaid information. Those may be the only warranties and guarantees you'll ever hear us issue. We guarantee it. Oh, oh I did it again. Dang it. Uh, no, that, that was facetious, SEC. We are not giving guarantees on the air. I, I guarantee it. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We do give facetious guarantees. You just did. I guarantee it. Yes. Oh, man. I keep doing that. Um, All right. So to explain some of the sound quality issues this week, uh, the studio from which Elder Baldy generally transmits is having its roof replaced. What's that you say? The roof. What what, what was that? Sorry. The dog's barking. I yeah, yes, the roof was being replaced, and so he couldn't hear himself think if he were there, and you couldn't hear him speak. So instead, he is transmitting digitally from his house. Uh, and if if there's a little bit of quality issues, believe me, it's all on AT&T there. We're not taking any credit for the quality issues. Our quality is always mediocre. <laughs> all right, uh, he's got a a thing circled here. There's a disagreement among economists about just how much market-driven financial conditions, the totality of factors such as stock prices and treasury yields and corporate bond risk premiums influence the economy relative to short-term interest rates set by the Fed. Um, there's a lot of confusion in the economic world right now. Economists are looking at this, and we've been saying this for three years, People are going to write papers, big papers, short papers, uh, white papers, and other colored papers about this time period because it's so weird. The pandemic shifted everything. When we're looking at the leading economic indicators being down for eight months, well, at the same time, we look at the spending of consumers going up. Um, We're, you know, the economists out there are baffled. You have to go back to when record-keeping was done in essay format in Latin sometimes to figure out what's going on. We have to look at weird events in history, uh, catastrophic events like volcanoes blowing up or uh, a significantly cold enough summer that it was essentially winter for three years. And those happened in the past. And we can vaguely see patterns that look like what we're seeing right now. It's weird. So what are the factors that influence our economy right now? Let's kind of let's kind of focus in on that because it's going to answer the question from John a bit. It's also going to talk about the other pieces that were, you know, when you're talking about the correction. We had a we had a stimulus two on one under Trump, one under Biden about uh, four or more than one under both, but those were the big ones for both of them. They came in to stimulate the economy at a point where it was dead on its feet. It was somnolent. We shut down because of the pandemic. So we had the stimulus money flow in. And Milton Friedman is famous for having said uh, inflation is always monetary. It's all about the money supply. Um, and certainly when, when it's said like that, it is, because that's what you're measuring inflation with, is with money. So absolutely, it's like saying math is all about numbers. Yes, that's true. It is about money supply. There are other things that contribute to that. We had more money in our system, but other places on the planet didn't, and they had inflation too. So they didn't have the big stimuluses in Europe. They didn't have the big stimuluses 
in Japan or in China. And Japan went from deflation to inflation during this time period. Uh, Europe's had double-digit inflation, worse than ours, and they didn't have the stimulus. So then you have to look at the other component of anything in the economy. You have supply and demand. The money is the supply in some cases. In some cases, it's the demand. So we have a large supply of money and a small supply of things that we couldn't get because everything was shut down. So we started competing for that stuff. And it started very quickly, early in the pandemic, with people saying, hey, we got to put institute emergency price controls on toilet paper and things like that, just like they do during hurricanes on plywood. Because supply and demand gets wonky there. If there's a massive demand all of all at once, the supply is not going to withstand that. So there were runs on toilet paper and toilet paper runs and rolls of toilet paper running. Uh, we had that, that was the simplest and maybe the most laughable unless you needed toilet paper and then it wasn't laughable at all. A uh, piece of the many, many thousands of things that we had a shortage of from cereal to baby food to uh, Lego toys. We had shortages of everything because the people that were shipping them around weren't shipping them around. They stopped. So we had this big boost of inflation. And then a war started and took all the things that we were already having trouble finding more of or enough of and made those even harder. And so we have this big boost. So the, the supply issues and the demand issues are all over the place. This is weird. You can't point at any single factor and say, that's it right there, or that's it right there. It's all of these. When the leading economic indicators are down for eight months, we're not having a recession yet. The stock market's heading back up, but that was one of the leading indicators that was saying, hey, a recession might be on the horizon, but we're hiring like crazy. We have a lot of money in the bank still from all this stimulus, and that's where a lot of this consumer spending is going, which is leading to higher earnings in small businesses like restaurants and convenience stores and things like that, while the big tech companies are losing their cheap loans and laying people off. And those people are immediately getting hired by other people who are paying them out of their bank accounts, their extra, extra money way above what they're getting paid in raises. And at some point, we'll either run out of the extra money in the bank accounts and extra put air quotes around that because has anybody ever had extra money? Um, generally speaking, you figure out what to do with the extra money so it's not extra anymore. Eventually, we'll get to the point where we don't want to spend the money that's sitting there, that that's enough. And if our economy is still manufacturing less and still doing less of all the things that the leading indicators are looking at, like housing starts, that's a big one. Housing starts are way, way down. It's a big component of our growth. If, the, the, if we have this juxtaposition, this crossing of lines of people slowing down spending at the same time that we still haven't started back up on the other parts of the economy, we're going to get a recession. We Economists are out there putting their ego and their reputations on the line, giving percentage point numbers of, I believe there's a 60% chance of a recession in the next, and we've done it too. And I've told you in the past how ludicrous that is because I can't predict the weather. And if we have two bomb cyclones this month in the Northeast, or we have a, an extra frozen spring in Europe, that's enough to tip us in one direction or another. I can't predict that. Nobody can. 
Even the weather forecasters can't predict that. So those are the components we have to look at. It's, it's not easy. Yogi Berra said it really well. Uh, the future is just not what it used to be. And it's never been what it used to be. We have patterns from the past. Twain, old Samuel Clements himself, said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there's a lot of rhymes in history for what we're seeing here. We have a productive economy that's had weird external influences of war and pandemic and weird internal influences of supply chain issues and trade wars. And you mix that all together into a pot full of chaos. And what I can tell you with a great degree of confidence and optimism is that when you have a pot full of chaos in the economic world at large, one country seems to do incredibly well coming out of that, and that's the United States of America. And, and I know that sounds all patriotic and so on. It's not. It's just look at history. We're really good at chaos. We grew coming through the pandemic when Europe was in an extended recession during the pandemic. China's still kind of arguing with us about if they had a recession or not. But if we look at the satellite imagery of the lights in China, they certainly weren't growing. They may be now. So coming out of this, owning the American economy makes sense. Owning parts of the rest of the world might make sense so long as they're not doing things like invading their neighbors or torturing people. So that's, that is the result that we're looking at here. And, and, to break that down into the simplest terms, if you're investing in places that respect ownership and respect the rule of law and believe that no person is above the rule of law, then it works well. As soon as you start going into other places, risks go up and you can still make a profit, but it definitely requires more attention. And I've been monologuing, so I want to bring you back in here. I know you've got stuff to talk about and you've been preparing yourself so jump right in well you're i'm i'm, I'm really enjoying listening to you talk about <laughs> i've always okay. enjoyed you've been listening to you for a long time yeah since, um, since i was wailing in um in anguish over being so hungry or cold or wet or being born or being, being born. born yeah yeah yep. you've been listening to me for longer i still i'm not sure i listen to you I think I do. I try, but you know, it's well, genetic. All right. Um, something relatively significant is going on between the White House and the Federal Reserve. The number two at the Federal Reserve, who we're both quite fond of, the number one and number two at the Federal Reserve are um, uh, Chairman Powell and Lael Brainerd is uh, the second. And she's just been uh, tasked as being the chief economic advisor to... The president, which is a very important position, obviously. I don't like to see her leave the Fed, especially to a position that is arguably starting to get political. And I know a lot of people are like, the Fed's very political. It isn't. It really isn't. It's a bunch of academics. If you ever sit in a conversation with members of the Federal Reserve, there is no flashy political slogan, period. It's just not about that. It's much, much more boring than that. Uh, they're not politically motivated and her being tasked as the, uh, head of the economic advisors to the president is a really big deal, but 
she's one of the few on the board of the Fed that is in the wait and see mentality. Do it slow and see what happens. She's kind of dovish in the hawk room. And it's nice to have that balance. That's part of the reason why we liked the number one and the number two. And the person who, who's going to replace her as number two, we're not really sure yet. The, the Biden administration is kind of floating names out there to see who's going to gasp in annoyance or shock or alarm. But generally, these nominations are way on the boring side. Um, we're kind of sad, though, in that she's going to go and be the top advisor to the president. That's going to be a really nice feather in her bonnet. Do you put feathers in bonnets? Do you wear bonnets anymore? I don't know. Uh, it, it's going to be a nice thing in her curriculum vitae to say she was the top economic advisor to the president and the number two on the on the Fed board. But it's going to be sad to see her go. We're a little bit, I'm a little bit worried. I'd like to see the Fed stay as it is when we're, we're in the middle of making this transition. But, you know, that's me. I'm more conservative and want to stay as is. Let's, let's slow down the changes. <sighs> Sometimes we can't. So that's a big piece of news, and it may affect some of the speed at which rates continue to rise. Um, what I would say with a great deal of certainty is in the next meeting of the Fed, we're going to see another quarter point rise, where I thought they might wait another meeting. What we're seeing from them now is very clearly saying, yep, we're going to raise quarter point. So just keep that in mind. We The last time we talked about this was just a couple of weeks ago, but we've seen the PPI come in and the CPI come in and other weird uh, letter combinations come in and they all seem to be inflating, which means the economy is doing well and the Fed's going to have to push the brakes some more to bring the inflation down. I know that's weird. Do you mind if we talk about that component for a second? Why is the Fed slowing the economy? That seems like such a bad idea to most people just so that they can fight inflation. Why, why is inflation so bad if we just going to make more, enough money to keep up with it? Um, isn't a growing economy more important than this inflation silliness? These, this is obviously people that haven't experienced a great deal of inflation, but I get this question a lot. Do you want to put your comments in there? Well, I think I, you're about to talk about something that is near and dear to all our hearts right. but uh, inflation high inflation tends to generate more high inflation which tend to generate more high inflation just like deflation tends to generate more deflation so getting it down around the two to three percent range i think the two percent range that they're shooting for is a very very good range to shoot for however we've just had some relatively about of relatively high inflation so when it averages out it'll come out somewhere between two and three percent which is interestingly what it has been for many 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 decades so um yeah. it's actually kind of nice to have a little inflation but yeah talk about why high inflation is bad all right um, because yeah. it eventually crashes. That's yeah. the big and, reason. Well, here's the deal is that inflation breeds more inflation and a temporary thing. Hey, we're getting our pay raises. We've been wanting these pay raises for a decade. That's the typical statement of most people when inflation starts to hit. The problem with it is, is then it becomes ingrained in the system and everyone expects a raise every year, even if they're not changing what they're doing. They're not doing it any better than they were before. And all prices start to go up. And if you're slow in keeping up with the rising prices as a company, then you can fail for no other reason 
than not having a gauge out there to see how fast you have to raise your prices every day. Uh, and that, again, compounds on itself so that enough companies doing it that way to keep up ahead and keep their margins good and profitable, they have to raise prices every day. So do their competition and so does everybody else. And so then you get what's called runaway inflation, where instead of just going 9%, you get what's happened in Turkey, which is 60 to 90% inflation in a year, or what's happened in Brazil in the past, 90% inflation a day. There's no way you can keep up with that on your paycheck. So in order to not have that happen, it's kind of like a feedback loop where you put the microphone in front of the speaker. It's going to feedback. It's going to be loud. And at a rock and roll concert, that's cool because you can get a little feedback. But if all you hear is feedback, nobody likes that. That's what we're talking about. A, a short spike of inflation can rebalance everybody's paychecks to a pretty fair level based on what they're doing. Extended bouts of inflation throw the paychecks all out of whack and all the prices out of whack. And there's no way you can just run a normal business without paying attention to the fact that the currency is being devalued every day. So why is that happening now? Why are we having a devaluation of our currency? It's because we have enough of it and we're making more of enough of it that we don't feel bad paying more for something that hasn't increased in, in quality. And this is something I talked about last week as the Chinese economy and manufacturing capabilities are opening back up. Expect a compounding of quality control issues, that those things are going to fall apart faster. Big chunk of that is because of the same issues that we're talking about across the entire board. We're willing to pay for it even if it breaks. It's most people, and this is an interesting concept, most people don't make a return of a good that's broken if they bought it online. If you bought it at a store, it's pretty reasonable. Most people will return a product that's faulty in some way. But if you bought it online, especially from a smaller retailer, most people don't return that stuff. It's too much of a hassle. You got to figure out how to get the packaging back or is it the original package and how much do you pay for the shipping? Does somebody else pay for the shipping? It's just a hassle, especially if it's a smaller item, a little electronic something or another that connects your phone or, it, or that connects your computer or whatever it is. Most people don't return that stuff. So quality is suffering because of it. And we're willing to pay for it because we're like, ah, it's too much hassle and it's, I can just buy a new one from somebody else. It's just, it's just five bucks or it's just eight bucks. I'll just do that. It's not worth my time. And these are people that sometimes are only making $16 an hour at work. It is worth your time to do. It's just hard because it's a hassle and you have to learn how to, it's not something you want to do in your free time. So this is an issue. This is why inflation has to be kept under control because inflation leads to poor quality across the board on almost everything because it's a it's now a competition to who's inflating slowest who has the cheapest price and if you're making quality goods you got to get ahead of inflation and charge more for the stuff that you're selling than you normally would which is going to out you're going to price you out of the market with the cheapos so that's why inflation is bad i have a whole bunch of stuff about where people are quitting and where they're not. Um, I've got stuff about 
auto payments being late, which is not a good sign. Uh, what do you what do you have on the on the docket here? We got six minutes left this hour before we jump in for next. Well, I don't have time to go into it, but there's some interesting. There, there are basically three paths, two paths that are being very popularly discussed. One is we go into a recession of going forward economically, and the other one is that we have a soft landing where we have a really sluggish, poor growth in this year. But there's a third one out there that actually has a lot of evidence that's supporting the fact that it could happen. And that is, we don't have slow growth. We don't have a recession. We have high growth all year. And it's certainly interesting to me. Our economy is about two-thirds driven by consumer spending. And consumer spending rose 3%, not annualized, in the month of January alone. Now, there's no way in the world that could be analyzed, annualized. You can't multiply that times 12 and and come up with what the year is going to be. But I would say no one I have been reading expected that. And uh, we may wind up with a serious growth economy all year, despite the increases in interest rates. That's an interest. We can talk about that more, but I didn't want to touch that on or touch on that. Okay. Um, well, we've got a couple of interesting bits. We've talked about leading indicators. We've talked about uh, how parts of the economy are booming. One of the things that we track with a nervous eye is how many people are late in paying for their cars or for their houses. Um, and obviously, we had a pandemic. Obviously, anybody that's around knows that. And in that pandemic, there were all kinds of controls set in place to prevent people from losing their houses through rent or mortgages or, and that helped with car payments too. So in 2020 and 2021, delinquencies on houses and on car payments were weird. We had big delinquencies in the houses. Nobody was foreclosing on that because they couldn't if they were backed by the federal loan companies. Um, What we're looking at out here is that in 2020, a little over 12% of the population that owned houses were late in their uh, payments by December. Now, there were all kinds of protections, so there wasn't a big wave of foreclosures. Then we had that drop, drastically drop. In one year, we went from 12% to December of 2022 was 5%. So in 2021, it's... 6%. So it went from 12 to 6 to 5. And then now we're just October is the last number that CoreLogic comes. And the the Federal Reserve is only looking back at last June. These are very lagging numbers. It's hard to get this stuff together because you got to survey all the mortgage companies. But what it looks like is that we're at a 4.6% late payment, a seriously delinquent mortgage, which is very down from last year, but if we go back to what was normal pre-pandemic, it was right around 3%. So we have a, a serious uptick in late payments on mortgages right now. And auto payments didn't get delinquent during the re- during the pandemic. It was weird. It was backwards because people didn't have to pay their mortgage. Car payments got extra payments sent to them and and they became kind of a going concern. So our delinquency rate dropped. Usually 
goes anywhere from it, it, during the year from a, about five and a half percent to about eight and a half percent. During the pandemic nasty time, it dropped way down to capping out below seven percent. Well, now it's peaking up above nine percent. It's not having the normal drop we see in the middle of the year as people are making money again. Delinquency rate on car payments is going up. So are interest rates on car payments. These are worrying trends. There's some other stuff that we're worried about, but these things are the things that are the real precursors of when the spending is having trouble continuing. Uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about on this subject because there's all kinds of components to this. Uh, and whether or not we grow out of this or have a recession, I don't think anybody can give you a firm answer on that. It's not possible. We can, we can give percentages, but those percentages are pulled from some orifice in our body that you probably don't want us to pull them from. Um, yes, our mouths. <laughs> you thought you would get your mind out of that. Okay. We're about out of time for this hour. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail on the weekend, real live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526 at 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can read our newsletter there. You can sign up for it. It comes out every Friday. You can find our podcasts anywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, you also can go to our webpage and contact us on the contact form or email us directly at Jeff and or Jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.